Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 238. Today's big Bible question, why did God reject the heroic, tall, and brave King Saul? So, hello, friends. Happy Friday to you. We are on the verge of another weekend. Time is flying and the world is burning. Well, I guess the world around us is burning anyway. I guess that's okay because it's not our permanent home now, is it? Our Bible readings for the day include 1 Samuel 13, Jeremiah chapter 50, Psalms 28 and 29, and Romans chapter 11. Well, so far, we've kind of glossed over the issue of predestination as we've traveled through Romans this time, but I do want to point you to an excellent podcast that discusses how Pastor John Piper deals with Romans 9. It's short, sweet, and powerful, and worth grappling with. And you can check it out at DesiringGod.org, or you can just come to our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com, look up the show notes for episode 238, Why Did God Reject Saul? And there's a link right there at the top of the show notes for you at BibleReadingPodcast.com. I think we'll be back in Romans tomorrow when we get around to Romans chapter 12, but for today... We will remain in 1 Samuel and we'll ask a very important question about King Saul, the first king of Israel. As we've seen with Saul over the past few days, he seems like a pretty decent guy, at least at first. He's tall and powerful, but also fairly humble, self-effacing. He seems to have a great amount of respect for Samuel, uh, the man of God, and he's brave. He's a good leader in battle. We can probably conclude that he's a good father, too, because his son Jonathan, who is David's best friend, King David's best friend, ultimately, uh, seems like a great guy. But, unfortunately, we get to a bad situation here in 1 Samuel 13, and it's going to be difficult to fully understand the situation unless we go back in time a little bit, because it seems like we're missing some context here. Well, let's read 1 Samuel 13. And then we can see if we can fill in some of the missing context and bits and pieces and discuss what exactly Saul did that caused God to reject him as king. 1 Samuel chapter 13 verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Saul was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned 42 years over Israel. He chose 3,000 men from Israel for himself. 2,000 were with Saul at Michmash and in Bethel's hill country and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. He sent the rest of the troops away, each to his own tent. Jonathan attacked the Philistine garrison at Gibeah, and the Philistines heard about it. So Saul blew the ram's horn throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all of Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine garrison, and Israel is now repulsive to the Philistines. Then the troops were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines also gathered to fight against Israel, 3,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth Haven. The men of Israel saw that they were in trouble because the troops were in a difficult situation. They hid in caves and thickets among rocks and in holes and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul, however, was still at Gilgal, and all his troops were gripped with fear. He waited seven days for the appointed time that Samuel had set, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgal and his troops were deserting him. So Saul said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. Then he offered the burnt offering. Just as he finished the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. So Saul went out to greet him, and Samuel asked him, What have you done? And Saul answered, 
When I saw that the troops were deserting me and you didn't come within the appointed days and the Philistines were gathering at Michmash, I thought, the Philistines will now descend on me at Gilgal and I haven't sought the Lord's favor. So I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you have been foolish. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you. It was at this time the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel, but now your reign will not endure. The Lord has found a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people, because you have not done what the Lord commanded. Then Samuel went from Gilgal to Gibeah in Benjamin. Saul registered the troops who were with him, about six hundred men. Saul, his son Jonathan, and the troops who were with him were staying in Geba of Benjamin, and the Philistines were camped at Michmash. Raiding parties went out from the Philistine camp in three divisions. One division headed toward Ophrah, leading to the land of Shual. The next division headed toward the Beth Horon Road, and the last division headed down the border road that looks out over the Zebalm Valley towards the wilderness. No blacksmith could be found in all of the land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all the Israelites went to, to the Philistines to sharpen their plows, mattocks, axes, and sickles. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for plows and mattocks and one-third of a shekel for pitchforks and axes and for putting a point on a cattle prod. So on the day of battle, not a sword or spear could be found in the hand of any of the troops who were with Saul and Jonathan. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had weapons. Now a Philistine garrison took control of the pass at Michmash. So let's put on our detective's hat, shall we? Samuel, a couple of chapters ago, had given Saul the order to wait for seven days, and then Samuel would come to him and offer burnt offerings on his behalf. Now, we might have forgotten that order because it was in First Samuel chapter 10, verse 8, which says, Afterwards, go ahead of me to Gilgal. I will come to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice fellowship offerings. Wait seven days until I come to you and show you what to do. And it may be that Saul forgot that too, because he got rash and impatient and scared because things were desperate, and he went ahead without Samuel and offered the sacrifices himself. So what's the big deal with that? Well, yeah, Saul didn't do what he was told, but you understand he was trying to please God by offering up a burnt offering and doing a good religious thing, so God should, you know, at least be somewhat happy with that, right? Isn't God pleased with us when we do religious things like go to church and, you know, that sort of thing? Well, actually, as Samuel will tell us in a couple of chapters, obedience is more important than doing religious things. In fact, we hear this in 1 Samuel 15, 22-23, where Samuel says to Saul, after he did a very similar thing again, disregarding the commands of God to do what seemed best. Samuel said, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Now Samuel tells Saul this after, again, he disregarded the word of the Lord and tried to do something that was seemed best in his own eyes. Saul would develop a pattern in his life of doing that over and over again, doing what was right in his own eyes, like the people during Judges, rather than following the command of God, and it would ultimately lead to his downfall. 
Indeed, Saul would ultimately commit the sin of divination in attempting to speak to the dead before all was said and done. Other than the fact that God had commanded Saul through Samuel to wait for him to make sacrifices, what was so bad about Saul doing it? What's the big deal about a king making sacrifices? I mean, he is the king, right? Well, the answer to that question is kind of deep, almost a little bit complicated, but it is as profound and important as an Old Testament question could be. With two exceptions in the Bible, really just the one exception, no king was allowed to perform the duties of the priest. This was the Bible version of the separation between church and state. So let's go listen to Tim Keller. Tell us about the two different roles of king and priest and why they were separate in all but two named king priests. And he begins by quoting Psalm 110 verse 4, which says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And Keller says, People who read Psalm 110 when it was new before the time of Jesus and during the time of Jesus would have been shocked by that passage. Why? Because in Israel, kings were not priests and priests were not kings. No one was allowed to do sacrifices in the temple or the tabernacle before that unless you were a Levite or a priest. It was illegal. The fact that kings and priests had different jobs was not simply just a technical difference. The calling of kings and the calling of priests, you might say, even the office of each, the mission of kings and priests were almost the opposite. Kings represented God to the people. Priests represented the people to God. Kings were coming from God to the people. Kings ruled in the place of God, figuratively. Kings were figures of strength and judgment because kings enforced the law of God in Israel. If you disobeyed the law of God, you were punished. So kings were figures of strength who brought judgment on people, but priests were exactly the opposite. The priesthood was an office of sympathy and service. Priests offered sacrifices and prayers for the people. Priests got atonement and forgiveness for sins. Priests cared for the poor and the sick. In the Old Testament, when you wanted to give your money to the poor, you gave it to the priests, and the priests distributed it. When Jesus heals the leper, he tells the leper, go and show yourself to the priest. Why? Because the priests were the health officers of society. They were the social workers. They were exactly the opposite. But even today, says Keller, some of you might be some social workers, some of you might be policemen, and you're very often working with the same people and you're working at loggerheads. One of you, in a sense, represents the king. It's your job to punish. It's your job to enforce the law. One of you, however, is an advocate. One of you is trying to get this person okay. Well, the king was a figure of strength and judgment, and the priest was a figure of love and mercy and forgiveness. Therefore, you don't have priests who are kings. You don't have a priest king. But you will never understand Jesus Christ. You will never understand the good news unless you understand that Jesus Christ was deeply, profoundly, radically, and equally both a king and a priest. In fact, I'd go so far as to say if your heart basically thinks of Jesus as more of a priest than a king or more of a king than a priest, you are injecting distortions into your life and you haven't fully understood Jesus yet. Jesus Christ combines things nobody else can combine. And if you don't see that he's both a king and a priest, we won't understand his person or his work. One of the great sermons that Jonathan Edwards wrote, wrote and preached years ago was called The Excellency of Christ. In that sermon, he says this, There is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ. He says there is a beautiful combination of excellent things that we would never think 
could be combined in one person, but because they are combined in Jesus, he is overwhelmingly beautiful. Jesus combines infinite majesty and glory, yet the lowest humility and meekness. He he combines infinite justice with boundless grace. He combines absolute sovereign dominion with perfect submission and obedience. He combines transcendent self-sufficiency with entire trust and reliance upon his Father. He's a lamb, but he's also a lion. He's a priest and he's a king. He's a judge and he's the one who offers sacrifice for forgiveness of sin all at once. Not one or the other, both. You can't understand his person or his work unless you understand he's both a priest and his king and a king. So let's start with his person and personality. With this model of understanding that Jesus is a priest and a king, just walk through the Gospels and look at him. On the one hand, you see Jesus Christ in front of the Pharisees, in front of the religious authorities, in front of Pilate, in front of people who could kill him. He is undaunted. He's bold. He says to the religious authorities, you whitened sepulchers, which is like a grave kind of thing, uh, or like a mausoleum. He goes into the temple, makes a whip, and throws out the money changers in the temple. He's bold, undaunted, courageous. And then, oh my, look at him going to the little dead girl and taking her by the hand and saying, Talitha kum, which means, honey, it's time to get up. Look at him going to the deaf mute and sighing and touching him as he heals him. Look at him going to the tomb of Lazarus. Mary says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't be dead. And Jesus just weeps speechlessly. Look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He brings his disciples in and says to him, This is the hour of my greatest need. I am under so much pressure. I have never needed friends like I need you right now. Please stay awake with me and pray with me. And Jesus goes to pray and then he looks around and those guys have gone to sleep on him. So what does he say to him? He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, which is kind of a King James archaism to say, hey guys, I know you meant well. Here is absolute power, undaunted boldness, and yet melt in your mouth sweetness, says Keller. He's a king and a priest. You will never see his beauty unless you see both of these and how he brings them together in a way that no one else does. By the way, you won't really understand Palm Sunday very well if you don't see this. Think about it. When Simon Maccabeus, a couple hundred years before Jesus, overthrew the Seleucid dynasty and restored independence to Judea, he rode into Jerusalem and they waved palms at him and shouted Hosanna and made him a king. Now, 200 years later, Jesus Christ rides into Jerusalem and he accepts them saying Hosanna and their waving palm branches. Unless he knew he was a king, he would never have allowed that. But he didn't ride in the same way that Simon Maccabeus did, did he? He rode in on a little baby donkey deliberately. One commentator on the passage in Matthew that describes Jesus riding in on that little baby donkey says, Victors in battle do not ride into their capital city riding on baby donkeys. They come in on fearsome war horses. But this King Jesus will not triumph through force of arms. The commentator goes on and says what Jesus is saying by riding in triumphant and at the same time on a baby donkey. He's the counterintuitive strong and weak king. The commentator says Jesus is saying by riding in that way, I will triumph, I will save you, but through weakness. I'm a king not going to a throne, but to a cross, because I'm a king and a priest. I'm a judge, but I also offer sacrifice for sin. So thanks be to God for the wonderful sacrifice of king and priest 
Jesus. We continue in Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 1. This is the word the Lord spoke about Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans, through the prophet Jeremiah. Announce to the nations, proclaim and raise up a signal flag, proclaim and hide nothing, say, Babylon is captured, Bel is put to shame, Marduk is terrified, her idols are put to shame, her false gods devastated. For a nation from the north will attack her, it will make her land desolate, no one will be living in it, both people and animals will escape. In those days and at that time, this is the Lord's declaration, the Israelites and Judeans will come together, weeping as they come, and they will seek the Lord their God. They will ask about Zion, turning their faces to this road. They will come and join themselves to the Lord in a permanent covenant that will never be forgotten. My people were lost sheep. Their shepherds led them astray, guiding them the wrong way in the mountains. They wandered from mountain to hill. They forgot their resting place. Whoever found them devoured them. Their adversaries said, we're not guilty. Instead, they have sinned against the Lord, their righteous grazing land, the hope of their ancestors in the Lord. Escape from Babylon, depart from the Chaldeans' land. Be like the rams that lead the flock, for I will soon stir up and bring against Babylon an assembly of great nations from the north country. They will line up in battle formation against her. From there she will be captured. Their arrows will be like a skilled warrior who does not return empty-handed. The Chaldeans will become plunder. All Babylon's plunderers will be fully satisfied. This is the Lord's declaration. Because you rejoice, because you celebrate, you who plundered my inheritance, because you frolic like a young cow treading grain and neigh like stallions, your mother will be utterly humiliated. She who bore you will be put to shame. Look, she will lag behind all the nations. No, an arid wilderness, a desert, because of the Lord's wrath, she will not be inhabited. She will become a desolation, every bit of her. Everyone who passes through Babylon will be appalled and scoffed because of all her wounds. Line up in battle formation around Babylon, all you archers. Shoot at her. Do not spare an arrow, for she has sinned against the Lord. Raise a war cry against her on every side. She has thrown up her hands in surrender. Her defense towers have fallen. Her walls are demolished. Since this is the Lord's vengeance, take your vengeance on her. As she has done, do the same to her. Cut off the sower from Babylon, as well as him who wields the sickle at harvest time, because of the oppressor's sword. Each will turn to his own people, each will flee to his own land. Israel is a stray lamb chased by lions. The first who devoured him was the king of Assyria. The last who crushed his bones was King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Therefore, this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says. I am about to punish the king of Babylon, and his land is just as I punished the king of Assyria. I will return to Israel to his grazing land, and he will feed on Carmel and Bashan. He will be satisfied in the hill country of Ephraim and of Gilead. In those days and at that time, this is the Lord's declaration. One will search for Israel's iniquity, but there will be none. And for Judah's sins, but they will not be found. For I will forgive those as I leave as a remnant. Attack the land of Marathalm and those living in Pecod. Put them to the sword. Completely destroy them. This is the Lord's declaration. Do everything I have commanded you. The sound of war is in the land. A crushing blow. How the hammer of the whole earth is cut down and smashed. What a horror Babylon has become among the nations. Babylon, I laid a trap for you and you were caught, but you didn't even know it. You were found and captured because you pitted yourself against the Lord. The Lord opened his armory and brought out his weapons of wrath because it is a task of the Lord God of armies in the land of the Chaldeans. Come against her from the most distant places. Open her granaries. Pile her up like mounds of grain and completely destroy her. Leave her no survivors. 
Put all her young bulls to the sword. Let them go down to the slaughter. Woe to them because their day has come, the time of their punishment. There is a voice of fugitives and refugees from the land of Babylon. The voice announces in Zion the vengeance of the Lord our God, the vengeance for his temple. Summon the archers to Babylon, all who string the bow. Camp all around her, let none escape. Repay her according to her deeds, just as she has done, do the same to her. For she has acted arrogantly against the Lord, against the Holy One of Israel. Therefore her young men will fall in her public squares. All the warriors will perish in that day. This is the Lord's declaration. Look, I'm against you, you arrogant one. This is the declaration of the Lord God of armies. For your day has come, the time when I will punish you. The arrogant will stumble and fall with no one to pick him up. I will set fire to his cities and it will consume everything around him. This is what the Lord of armies says. Israelites and Judeans alike have been oppressed. All their captors hold them fast. They refuse to release them. The Redeemer is strong. The Lord of armies is his name. He will fervently champion their cause so that he might bring rest to the earth, but turmoil to those who live in Babylon. A sword is over the Chaldeans. This is the Lord's declaration against those who live in Babylon, against her officials and against her sages. A sword is against the diviners and they will act foolishly. A sword is against her heroic warriors and they will be terrified. A sword is against his horses and chariots and against all the foreigners among them, and they will be like women. A sword is against her treasuries, and they will be plundered. A drought will come on her waters, and they will be dried up. For it is a land of carved images, and they go mad because of terrifying things. Therefore, desert creatures will live with hyenas, and ostriches will also live in her. It will never again be inhabited or lived in through all generations." Just as God demolished Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, this is the Lord's declaration, so no human will live there. No one will live there. No human being will stay in it even temporarily as a temporary resident. Look, a people comes from the north. A great nation and many kings will be stirred up from the remote regions of the earth. They grasp bow and javelin. They are cruel and show no mercy. Their voice roars like the sea. And they ride on horses, lined up like men in battle formation against you, daughter Babylon. The king of Babylon has heard about them, and his hands have become weak. Distress has seized him, pain like a woman in labor. Look, it will be like a lion coming from the thicket of the Jordan to the watered grazing land. I will chase Babylon away from her land in a flash. I will appoint whoever is chosen for her, for who is like me? Who will issue me a summons? Who is the shepherd who can stand against me? Therefore, hear the plans that the Lord has drawn up against Babylon and the strategies he has devised against the land of the Chaldeans. Certainly the flock's little lambs will be dragged away. Certainly the grazing land will be made desolate because of them. At the sound of Babylon's conquest, the earth will quake and a cry will be heard among the nations. Psalm chapter 28 verse 1. Lord, I call to you. My rock, do not be deaf to me. If you remain silent to me, I will be like those going down to the pit. Listen to the sound of my pleading. When I cry to you for help, when I lift my hands towards your holy sanctuary, do not drag me away with the wicked, with the evildoers who speak in friendly ways with their neighbors while malice is in their hearts. Repay them according to what they have done, according to the evil of their deeds. Repay them according to the work of their hands. Give them back what they deserve because they do not consider what the Lord has done or the work of his hands. He will tear them down and not rebuild them. Blessed be the Lord for he has heard the sound of my pleading. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and I am helped. Therefore my heart celebrates and I give thanks to him with my song. 
The Lord is the strength of his people. He is a stronghold of salvation for his anointed. Save your people, bless your possession, shepherd them, and carry them forever. Amen. Psalm chapter 29, verse 1. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is above the waters. The glory of the God of glory thunders. The Lord above the vast water. The voice of the Lord in power. The voice of the Lord in splendor. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the woodlands bare. In his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned king forever. The Lord gives his people strength and the Lord blesses his people with peace. Romans chapter 11 verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I'm the only one left, and they're trying to take my life. But what was God's answer to him? I have left 7,000 for myself who have not bowed down to Baal. In the same way, then there is also at the present time a remnant chosen by grace. Now, if by grace, then it is not by works. Otherwise, grace ceases to be grace. What then? Israel did not find what it was looking for, but the elect did find it. The rest were hardened, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear to this day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a pitfall and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs be bent continually. I ask then, have they stumbled so as to fall? Absolutely not. On the contrary, by their transgressions, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Now, if their transgression brings riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness bring? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles in so far as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry if I might somehow make my own people jealous and save some of them. For if their rejection brings reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now, if the first fruits are holy, so is the whole batch. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, if some of the branches were broken off and you, through a wild olive branch, were grafted in among them and have come to share in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree, do not boast that you are better than those branches. But if you do boast, you do not sustain the root, but the root sustains you. Then you might say, branches were broken off so that I might be granted grafted in. Well, true enough. They were broken off because of unbelief, but you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but beware, because if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Therefore, consider God's kindness and severity. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you, if you remain in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not remain in unbelief, will be grafted in because God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from your native wild olive tree and against nature were crafted, grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? 
I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Regarding the gospel, they are enemies for your advantage. But regarding election, they are loved because of the patriarchs. Since God's gracious gifts and calling are irrevocable, as you once disobeyed God but now have received mercy through their disobedience, so they too have now disobeyed, resulting in mercy to you, so that they may also now receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor and who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Good day, friends. and Godspeed to you.